Hi, I'm Greg Soul, and welcome to Why Am I, a podcast where I have conversations with interesting folks and try and trace a path to where they find themselves today. My guest this go-around is Mario Acevedo, a passionate author and artist who never lets failure stop him. And I do mean never. It's borderline crazy. He's also got a quote for everything, which uh, really puts him kind of on the same wavelength as me. <laughs> At any rate, I hope you enjoy my chat with Mario. I'm going to take another swing at your name. It's Mario Acevedo, right? Yeah. Excellent. Well, Mario, thank you for joining me today on the Why Am I podcast. So uh, I'm going to ask you kind of, this is sort of the rhythm I've gotten into with starting these things out. You and I are at the grocery store. There's a backup. The credit card machine's broken, right? So we're sitting there. We're having a conversation. I tell you who I am and what I do for a living. And now it's your turn to reciprocate. And what do you what do you say? Who are you? <laughs> who am I? Yeah, yeah. Right? It's, this, it's always this is... curious because, you know, somebody will say, well, I'm a, you know, I'm a, a bank manager. And then it's your turn to say, you know, because people generally identify themselves through their occupation. I'm just curious, like, when you say this is who I am, who is it that you tell people you are? Well, okay. Let's talk about me. <laughs> <laughs> We're only talking about you. This is all about you. So, uh, well, I'm a writer. I'm a professional writer. That's what pays my bills. And I am a writing instructor and also a visual artist to think of myself in terms of writing uh, novelist ghostwriter i like writing uh it used to be called urban fantasy i don't know what, the, what it's called anymore uh more but it's still fantasy vampires things like that some science fiction and uh getting into horror and I dabble, and I want to dabble with more commitment to crime fiction. Crime fiction. Well, man, that's a lot to unpack all there, right there. <laughs> you said visual artist. Why Why preface it with visual? Because I paint. Yeah. As opposed to being a sound artist like a singer, which I'm not. Um, graphic artist implies somebody... Different, more to me anyway. To an illustrator, somebody who's very competent with uh, digital media, for example, which I'm not. Um, I I paint in oils and uh, some in watercolors, and then I, I I draw. I don't know if you saw the cartoons. Yeah, yeah. The, the cat in quarantine cartoons. Um, so I like. I was a cart. Yeah, so I could also say I guess I'm a cartoonist as well. It's so funny. I, I asked you that question because whenever I, I hear somebody say um, I'm an artist, that's the first thing that pops into my head is that they like paint or draw or do something in that fashion. But you as an artist, I guess you see how many more facets there are to kind of that field. And so it, it makes sense to be very specific, I guess, for you. Uh, well, I, yeah, I, I, I think so. Um, um, and then, you know, what, what is the, you know, for example, they were throwing around the term creatives, you know, creatives, which I think is a complete BS term <laughs> um, because um, 
you had a lot of people jumping onto the creative bandwagon. What wagon? Well, what what is you know what is what are the limits to creativity, right? I mean, you could have somebody who's very creative with bookkeeping, bookkeeping, right? You can get themselves in trouble, right? <laughs> but uh, uh, but you know, I think all of us are creative in in our way. You know, like uh, somebody who's very creative in the kitchen, for example. I I, I think would see them as somewhat pretentious if they call themselves a culinary artist <laughs> unless they were famous and just say, just say chef, right? Yeah. I mean, if somebody's a chef, you just kind of imply that it implies that they're very creative in the kitchen, that they just do different kinds of things. That goes with the name there. Um, somebody who says that they're an illustrator, then they would imply that they're creative in that, in that regard. Um, there are people who are uh, mechanics who are also very creative because um i mean you know there's the the part about the fixing the car and making it run right uh, but then there's the other part about customizing cars mm. right and and uh mixing things and putting different kinds of engines in cars and things like that i live next to our neighbor who uh, uh his job was he would recycle jet engines and he would drag race pickup trucks and he would mount jet engines on the back. And that was how he made his living. That's wild. And like, who knew? Right? I mean, like, who knew? And I go, where do you get these jet engines? And I go, oh, the Air Force and the Navy, they surplus these things. And I just go and, and, and he works in his garage in his house is where he does this stuff. He doesn't, he doesn't fire him up there, yeah. but because um, of noise. <laughs> but, you know, there's a lot of creativity in, in, in that regard. Gardeners, you know, very creative yeah. Uh, so, so to me, the the idea of being creative is is very wide. Uh, but then I think when we're talking to people, and like you said, if somebody says they're an artist, then that that I think we tend to think of a like a visual, like a painter, a visual artist, a painter. Uh, uh, if somebody's a sculptor, they're an artist, but then they would identify themselves as a sculptor. yeah, fair enough. Uh, you know, a poet identify themselves that way. A musician. Right, you know, you had Prince, who for a while adopted, took the name as the artist. Remember that? Um, so, but if somebody is to say as an artist, and then they say, "Well, I'm a musical artist," then in your head, well, you're a musician. Yeah, right? yeah. Right? So that that that's how it goes. Right? Hey. And if I was to say as a painter, then you might think, "Well, you look at me, you're a Mexican. You might, hey, how much to paint my house?" Right. You know, so you have to be careful that way. <laughs> uh, you said a creative. Have you ever had anybody introduce themselves and describe themselves as, "Oh, I'm a, I'm an I'm a creative." Have you ever actually had to? Because that sounds super pretentious. Like I can't imagine somebody saying, "Oh, I'm a creative." That's what I do. Actually, I have not. Okay. Uh, but I've had other people, for example, you know, generally people from bureaucrats or something. Oh, we need to get these creatives together. Oh, I gotcha. That um, and these people, and but I've never heard anybody consider themselves. And I came up on a list one time as one of the hundred creatives. Or cre yeah, yeah, I think they used the term. They didn't use the term creator. They used the term one of the hundred creatives of Denver. And well, they say, okay, I'll own that, you know, you know, because they were lumping me with a bunch yeah, of other. Yeah, that sounds cool. Uh, art artists, and that was kind of cool in that way, you know. And they were not, you know, they were minting it. They meant it to draw attention to me and and hopefully what I was adding to the local cultural landscape. Uh, but it gets kind of broad, you know, like what that what that is. 
for example, I think they introduced one of the directors of the ballet as a creative. And I'm like, well, that's to me, that's more of an administrator, I think. But <laughs> So that's interesting. So we're talking a little bit about your art. Um, and you said mm -hmm. you're a visual artist and you paint. You talked about oils. Um, am I crazy or early in your career were you doing some watercolors and stuff like that? Actually, I, I, I started doing watercolors. Um, and I used to think I was pretty good at it, actually, you know. Um, and, but what happened was, you get, it's a matter of logistics. If you got ready for a show and you had a, you had a watercolor painting that, if you wanted to sell it at a get a good price, you had it. You have to frame it and mat it and, and all that. And so, a painting you could probably spend just and I, and I used to do it at home to say cost. So it probably cost me a hundred dollars to mat and frame it. And a very basic, just so it looks presentable. Mm. So if you have ten pieces for a show, that's a thousand dollars. Yeah, yeah, just basic mat framing and for for a show. And if but if you don't mat and frame the watercolor, then you're not going to get any decent price for it, right? You just put it in the sleeve and it's in the bin and people, you know, pay you $50, $75 for it. Or if you mat and frame it, you know, you, you'll get several hundred dollars uh, for it. Just, it, it would just, that's, that's just the way it is in people's mind is that they expect the watercolor to be matte and framed. Whereas a, uh, an oil painting or even a water uh, or an acrylic painting, if you just have the canvas itself, you can ask, you know whatever you want for it and it's up to the person to to frame it if you know if they want um so so that that's why i got away from doing the watercolors um, that's interesting so presentation has so much to right. do with how people perceive the value of that piece of art it's just how you're presenting it to them that's exactly right just like we were talking about meals right the presentation of the meal yeah. right <laughs> you know here's a plate at a diner's ten dollars that same plate all gussied up at a restaurant you know a hundred dollars well what do they say you um you eat with your eyes first so i guess if uh if a meal looks more appetizing looks more inviting oh that oh yeah absolutely absolutely i guess it's the same sort of thing with so i am not a painter by any stretch of the imagination i went to one of those little classes where you uh sit and you paint a vista or whatever it happens to be and that was a lot of fun um, so I only have a little bit of experience with oils, but I'm assuming cause like looking at the mediums, watching people paint watercolor looks so much less forgiving than oil. Is that sort of the case? What would you say as far as that goes? Well, yeah, because you can just paint over oil. Yeah. So I was thinking if I screwed up in the class, I could just go back over it. But with watercolor, you don't really have that as an option, right? No, no generally not. Um, yeah, you kind of committed, and you have to do a. I think you have to do a lot more planning with uh, watercolors, and you tend to layer paints on top of each other, washes, um, and it's, and watercolor is a very transparent medium. If it's opaque, then it's a gouache. It has a, has a certain I, I forgot what the substance in it that gives it that opacity. So you can paint with um, gouache. I don't know if you remember, if you're a kid, remember painting with tempers, temper paint. Oh, I have um, no very idea. very heavy. Okay, probably in a craft class. Yeah, or something. you have to talk to me like I'm five when it comes to this stuff. Okay, well, <laughs> you know, gua yeah, gua gouache is uh, opaque watercolor, and you can mix that, and that can be a little bit more forgiving than um, 
uh, than watercolor. And and then some people can be real snobs about uh, watercolor in that you can't use white paint. So you have to plan ahead yeah. and you have to mask, for example, the the white in the in the painting is the paper. So you have to mask that. You have some kind of a rubber or you paint around it in that regard. Um, and in fact, there's some competitions that won't allow you to use white paint. Um, everything has to be trans those transparent washes, which gives it which gives watercolor its luminosity. Hmm. Do you still do any watercolor at all? Or are you pretty much all oils now? But pretty much all all oils, um, because I'm doing larger pieces and. Um, I do, I do, I do have my watercolors, and they kind of called to me. Come on, come on, play with us. <laughs> I, I, I haven't though, because I know, I just know that it's people just think that you just slop the paint on with watercolor, but no, it, it, for me anyway, it's very time intensive. So how is it? How is it that you started out doing the hard thing, and then like migrating to the easy? What, like, what was it that got you started with watercolors to begin with? Oh, because they're less expensive. Oh. You get the little hobbies, the little hobby set, yeah. and, and play with that. This they're also more transportable because of oil. You know, you have all the the uh, the mediums, and then you have the thinner, the the, the petroleum product, or whatever you have to use. So it's not very conducive to move around. Mm. Uh, so traveling watercolor is just a little bit more convenient to move. You said though watercolors were calling to you. What is it you miss about it? Well, yeah, that 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 transparent, that luminosity, that ability, the the fact that they tend to look a little bit more spontaneous huh. than than oil paintings. For me, anyways, you know, it's, it's technique, but for me, uh, watercolors tend to look more spontaneous. Even though you already said that it takes more planning and more work, it looks it's, more yeah, spontaneous. It's planned spontaneity, right? <laughs> that's interesting that's that's quite an interesting juxtaposition right there it is it is it i don't is. think i'm ever going to be able to look at watercolor the same from now on <laughs> plan spontaneity i'm gonna i'm writing that one down i like that all right so earlier you mentioned i don't even know if it was in this but you mentioned you were born in el paso how did you Correct. how did you end up in uh, El Paso. So that's Texas. That's out. That's like way east or uh, west Texas. Right. Well, yeah. It's far west. Yeah. I mean, you're basically in the desert out there. How'd you end up in El Paso? Correct. Well, I was born there. <laughs> I ended up. So it's, the question should be, how did my parents? How did you, okay. How did your parents end up in El Paso? So my, well, my dad was born there too. So that's how he ended up. Um, my mother immigrated. My mom was, uh, uh, you know the term today is undocumented worker back then wet back that's what she was i mean we my my family were very proud of her wet back heritage um and because we that's how we came over from mexico um my my grandfather is, came over as a as a, as a young he's 14 years old when he came from mexico to, to el paso and settled down and then when my mother i think the year was 1953 when she jumped the barbed wire fence from Juarez into El Paso. Uh, she told me she 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 went to uh, there was a town there was a club in downtown El Paso called the Frog Club, <laughs> and uh, it was a place to go meet uh, a lot of American GIs. And my mom 
would they would go and and if uh, if they went over the bridge they'd get hassled but if they would just kind of around the bridge and she'd tell me that they would take the women would take off their their nylon so they wouldn't <laughs> snag them on the barbed wire fence when they they came over uh, so and then she said that the first time she jumped the fence because she always heard it there was money in the U.S. and she jumped the fence and she looked and there was a dollar bill. And she goes, it's, it's, it's true. It's true. There, the money just lies on the ground. Uh, so, and then, uh, and then my, but my dad was at stationed at, uh, uh, Biggs, uh, uh, Fort Bliss. Fort Bliss. I think it was Biggs Army Airfield, but then it was Fort Bliss. And, and I was, and so then, um, he got stationed to Rapid City, Ellsworth Air Force Base, which is Rapid City, South Dakota. Whoa. And my my sister was born there. I don't remember much. I was just a little kid. And then we moved to Las Cruces, New Mexico. And I grew up in Las Cruces. We had He had relatives there. That's why I grew up there. And then, and then out of high school, and I went to uh, New Mexico State. And then I went in the Army. Yeah, and I, I did a little stint there at Fort Hood, Texas. Ugh. I love, I, I really like Texas. You know, I really did going back there. And then the hill country is very different from El Paso because El Paso is just desert. And, yeah. And the most interesting thing at in El Paso at that time was Juarez, going to Juarez, uh, Mexico. Um, and then also growing up in New Mexico, there was always a rivalry between New Mexico and Texas, that part of Texas. Just like in other parts of Texas, there's a rivalry with Oklahoma. <laughs> Um, you know, so, um, so, so then I was in the army there at Fort, Fort Hood. I spent a lot of time in Austin, which I really liked. Um, and then got out, went to, uh, moved to, you see, I, I went, when I left Fort Hood, I went to Fort Rucker, Alabama. And then from Fort Rucker, I got out of the army and I went back to Texas and I lived in Louisville, Flower Mound area, hmm. just north of Dallas. Mm-hmm. And again, I liked it a lot. And then that's when I got serious about my artwork. And I remember I I entered a watercolor painting at my first competition in Plano, Texas, the Plano Art Fair. And I won I won first prize and a five hundred dollar check. And I thought to myself, Oh, this is easy. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, and and it, you know, so. Um, and then it turned out to be not so easy. Mm. Making, uh, so, um, so I was doing a lot of artwork there. I actually got, I had a job as an engineer for a while. What kind of engineer? And, uh, I, I actually have a degree in mechanical engineering. Interesting. In, yeah, yeah, bachelor of science in mechanical engineering. And then, um, then I got a job out of the army working for Texas Instruments. Mm. As a manufacturing engineer, and I didn't like it. <laughs> the job and, and the job didn't like me either. Um, so so then I went and um, hung my shingle out as a as an artist and was pretty active in the local art community. You know, I was a small fish, um, but I was you know trying my best and selling artwork and getting in some shows and winning some little prizes here and there. Um, then I moved to Fresno, California, which is the armpit of California. 
when when I lived there, the local sheriff said that the reason Fresno is not the murder capital of America is because they were lousy shots. <laughs> That's hilarious. Yeah, yeah, it was. But it was so I, I was there for, for for a few years. I did I did some more artwork uh, there. I moved because my my wife at the time we had relatives and she wanted to open a business. So I like okay, uh, and. Uh, I did I did artwork there. I was involved. There was a place called Arte Americas, and I was their artist in residence for them. Yeah, I did. Um, and then Desert Storm happened, and I got called up by the Army, and I went overseas as a soldier artist for the Army, and I did artwork, watercolors for the Army. Man, you are moving awfully fast in all this. I have so many questions. You're killing me. Go ahead. You're go, killing me. Go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> I don't want to interrupt you, but... Um, Let's go back a little bit. Let's go back to sure. when you first started, you know, being uh, a creative, as you so lovingly put it. Uh, when did you start drawing and things like that? I was a kid. Right. So it was um, always, was, was it like, were your parents artistic in any way? No, no, they weren't. No, they, they weren't. <laughs> um, no, they weren't, they weren't artistic. Uh, and I, you know, I and I kind of wish, um, you know, looking back, and maybe uh, I've been a, but you know, it's on me being a little bit more heads up or being a little bit having a little bit more initiative about being an artist at the time. I, you know, I didn't know what it, it it takes to be an artist and you know, what you have to do. Um, I, I want one of the issues, and I think this is what makes being an artist so so fascinating is that to be a good artist, you have to break the rules. Okay. Mm -hmm. And in our culture, it's all about following the rules. Mm. And particularly as, as things get more and more bureaucratic and, and government gets bigger, it's all about rules. And whereas to be creative, it's about essentially being creative means breaking the rules. And, and, and what does that mean in terms of artwork in that regard? And then the, the other part to that is, is having is having the confidence of being able to to market yourself and put yourself out there. And earlier you had Eric Matowski, mm -hmm. and he's he's really really good at, at at doing that that part of it of putting himself out there and marketing and being very creative about the way that he that he does that. Uh, you know, and it's, that's that in itself is a lot of work. Uh, I know a lot of artists who kind of do their work and they're expecting somebody to kind of kind of rescue them, right, and show them how to be rich and famous in that regard. And, and it, it, it doesn't work that way. It's, it's all on your own. And, you know, how, how do you do that? How do you, you know, the issue of self-promotion. And, and on the one hand, people tend to look down on that because they're saying it's, it's artwork. It doesn't need to be promoted, right? It can exist on its, on its own. But they're just, you just, you just, you're drowned because there's just so mm. much of, uh, out there that you're competing against. And if you look at the most successful artists, they've all been very good at self-promoting themselves. Yeah. We tend to forget. Well, I mean, if that. you have your art and it all just sits in a closet, you know, it's not being appreciated by anybody. So that's not really doing you any good. And it seems like in my experience, a lot of people that are doers are really good at that thing that they do. But the other aspects, you know, it's either uncomfortable or they're just not really good at it. Right? And if it's something that you're uncomfortable with, you're probably not going to put as much time and energy uh, into doing that. And like you're talking about the promotion, the business side, I guess, of being an right, artist. Right. And that's, would you, <laughs> from most of the artistic folks I've talked to, that's the hardest part of the entire process for them. It's not um, 
having an inspiration or actually, you know, spending hours and hours toiling away at their art, it's the business side, right? That, that seems to fumble. That's correct. Same thing with with writing, um, that, that that part of it. Um, the uh, the part where I do, for example, the ghost writing and the writing for hire, um, you know, the clients are come come to us for the most part. Uh, well, they do, and it's a matter of them finding, you know, what we can offer. But the work that I do for myself, the creative, well, I'm say creative, but the the novels and things like that. Even when they do get picked up by a big publisher, they just kind of throw it on you to promote it somehow, and and, and you learn very quickly what doesn't work, and and it's harder to find out what really does work, other than just hammering your head out there all the time and making yourself presentable and, and making yourself available. So that's so that's that part of the of the promotional part. Um, they would tell us, uh, you go to these conferences, you go to workshops about making a living in the artists, and they tell you half of your effort is going to be marketing yourself and promoting yourself, right? you know, having websites, um, different kinds of giveaway promotions, uh, attending conferences, you know, I hate to use the word branding yourself, but, you know, that's sort of, that's what yeah, you have to do. I am wholeheartedly yeah. on board with that, yeah. Right. So. Something I just something that screamed at me is that a minute ago you were talking about being an artist means breaking the rules. And I was and you were, you know, I you're so true with that. Or or uh being successful means breaking so I was thinking about all of the people we celebrate in society, they're rule breakers, but they all broke the rules in the right way, right? Like in this socially acceptable way. At least some of them though. I guess, you know, it's like all of the, you know, the Elon Musks and stuff like that, right? They they may not be great people, but they've done a good job at breaking the rules, right? Not following the normal patterns and things like that and becoming amazingly successful. And, you know, we all celebrate them for that and various things like that. But you've got an interesting career of being... So you were in the Army, right? Correct. And uh, I'm trying... You're also you've done something that's on my bucket list. You've got a you've got a Wikipedia article about you. So in there, it was saying that you uh, you flew attack helicopters. Yeah, correct. You did yeah. paratrooper, infantry officer. So you've done a lot of things that uh, generally they encourage you not to break the rules, to very much follow the rules. Um, so how do you juxtapose, you know? that part of your life where, you know, you're very encouraged to follow the rules with switching over to the art part where you're saying that to really be successful, you have to break the rules. You can't listen to anybody else. So how's that? Is that, how do those two sides of your brain kind of coincide there? How do they cohabitate? Well, well, one of the things obviously, like for example, in, in flying, there's a lot of rules in flying, and if you break the rules, you die. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. <laughs> right, you know the you know the mechanic. You hope the mechanic follows follows all the rules as he's working, yeah. and and, um, and you learn that when people break the rules is when they get in trouble flying. Um, but I have to say, as an officer, particularly, <clears throat> particularly an officer in in in, in, the, in the United States military. They're actually encourage you to be innovative and don't let the bureaucracy get in the way of what you have to do. Um, so because if you do that, the bureaucracy always has 
obstacles, um, red tape, as it were. So all the ex the successful officers that, that I knew that I admired were were able to work around that to do some very interesting things, be you know innovative, you know within that, you know within that realm. Um, and when you start doing, for example, you know combat operations, there there's a lot of opportunity there to be very innovative in ways because you have to because in 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 the military. It's been a while, but I think they had like the nine fundamentals of war that we had to memorize and, you know, firepower and communication. And the most important one, which gives you the overwhelming advantage every time, is the element of surprise. Just think hmm. about that. So that's why, you know, we, we're fighting, we're very technologically savvy and we're fighting this guerrilla army. They maintain the, the initiative because of the element of surprise. So they're always calling the shots, right? And then we respond and then they melt away into the desert and into the jungle. So, so the element of surprise and the element of surprise depends on you being creative, because if you do it once and the enemy's savvy to it, mm. right? So, I mean, so that, there's that as, there's that aspect of it in in in, in the military. Um, but yeah, for, for you know, for the rest of that part, um, I just one of the things I didn't like about being an engineer. I, it, it was not as stimulating to me in the creative sense that I that I that I wanted it, that I thought it would be. Um, so I, I I found the job kind of dull actually, and and it really and I had some friends of mine who stayed in that profession and did very well, but they just looked at it differently than I did. So I'm not saying that you know the way I looked at it or the way they looked at it was wrong, because to them they were able to use this creative part of their brain to get ahead, but but the creative part of of me did not see those those venues in in that particular profession. I, you know, just, I just saw the world. In a, in a different way. Um, so in, in the art part, um, some of the artists that I really admired growing up were the Airbrush artists of the late 70s and the 80s. Mm. Uh, one, one of those guys, uh, Peter Lloyd is one of them. You ever see us, he did the painting. If you ever see the cover to, um, I think it's Crossing the Atlantic uh, by, um, oh gosh. I'm, I'm spacing his name. Is the musician? Um, so that that painting, if you ever see the album, is a it's an amazing piece of work. And what happened is that the the Peter Lloyd, who was an airbrush artist in Los Angeles, and they were doing a lot of album covers and things, he got a call and said, "Look, um, this um, uh, this this artist that we have is not working out, and we we need you to do this cover." And he's like, wow, okay, sure, I, 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 I'm honored to do that. And they say, we need it tomorrow morning. <laughs> <laughs> and and I, I am like, but, you know, he came from the school of these eyebrush artists who were, these guys were machines. And they were machines, not just in, the, in, not just in, in their output, in the quantity of output, but these guys are just like, they defined what airbrush art is wow. uh, and, and remains today. Because uh, they, they, the airbrush art kind of reached its zenith before World War II, and then it became kind of dated, and then these guys took it up um, and, and, and just went many, many different ways and really established it. So any, anything that you see today that is airbrushed art is just derivative of what those guys have done. And it just, but what was impressed me, particularly when I learned about these guys, is their work ethic. And um, they said the, the only excuse not to turn 
a work on deadline is that you felt dead. <laughs> right. So, I mean, so that's how these, these, these guys were. Uh, so, uh, so that's the other part of, of being an artist. And I think to be a good artist is this idea of, of, of being professional, of, um, of doing your best work, of answering the call, the daily call, uh, not just waiting for the muse, uh, putting yourself out there and showing up and doing the work. Right. Treat it like a, a job, right? You have to well, yeah, yeah. get in I mean, there, you I put mean, in the hours. Yeah, you have to, you have to do that. Um, but, and I was listening to Eric Matowski talking about this is that it, particularly for, for a, a job like, like a visual artist, and then you have the responsibilities and then you have your, your pressures to pay the bills and to live a good life, you know? Um, you know, how do you balance that? And I had a, uh, I had a writer friend, and I'll tell you her name, Linda Sandoval, who, you know, there's a lot of people say that you're kind of selling out by having the day job. Hmm. Right? And she says, no, it, you, you have to see that as the kind of freedom that it gives you. So sure, it's the day job and it's getting you money and it's paying the bills, but you're, it doesn't mean that you're chained there. And it and and you have to recognize the the freedom that 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 can give you to pursue the other um, aspects that you want, um, the other creative avenues that you want to explore. Hmm. I find that I find that interesting in multiple uh, multiple ways uh, because I, I feel like you can you can't work a day job and then find your fulfillment. Right? Not everybody's gonna. Uh, do the thing that they absolutely love the most for a living, but it doesn't mean you can't still be fulfilled by that, you know, in the in-between time, in those interstitial periods, you know, where you have that free time you can dedicate towards it. But also, um, I find if I'm not forced into different environments, I'm not finding new uh, creative things as outlets, you know, like whenever I get forced into a new scenario or I talk to a new person, I learn so many new things and I come up with all these ideas that I would have never had before and so if I'm just, I guess, in here trying to materialize some inspiration, that's really difficult for me. I really need to be in the world. I need to be interacting with other people and forced into uncomfortable scenarios, situations. Now this is uncomfortable. I love this, to be honest. But uh, before I talk to somebody, I still just for a couple minutes get some butterflies in my stomach. Right? I think it's more the oh, okay. anticipation of, of you know, what am I going to discover? You know, what am I going to learn about well, myself? Well, I hope I didn't dis disappoint you. No, absolutely not. So, yeah. <laughs> You're like, wow, what is this with this guy? No, no, no. I definitely, I definitely get it. And there's a lot of stuff I want to dig in with you. Um, but, yeah, I, I totally get that. Like, uh, and to me, whenever I hear somebody say, you sold out, that is like, it just, to me, it says to that person that they're just immature in where they are in life, right? They, they just don't understand your perspective or they lack the empathy to see where you've come from in your life, where you're at and what it requires to be you. You know, they can't put themselves in your shoes. They just, all they can do is look through their eyes and try and put a label on you. I don't understand that from other people, why they, um, but to me, yeah, again, it's just a maturity thing. They just haven't, they haven't grown enough in whatever aspect it would be to allow them to see that, you know, you are another human that's still trying to figure things out just like they are. So, yeah. That, that, yeah, that reminds me of a quote, and I, um, I think it's by Napoleon Hill who said, 
for most people, the only taste of success is when they take a bite out of you. So wow. I love quotes. Yeah, I do too. I I, I have lots of quotes. So um so anyway, that crossing the Atlantic, I had to look it up with a. It was for the artist Rod Stewart. So if you if you look up that that painting. That if you look up Rod Stewart crossing the Atlantic, you'll see the album cover, and it's one of those fold-out album covers. It's double, and and it is and it on itself is very remarkable. It's so busy and just so colorful. Uh, that that particular artist Peter Lloyd just has this way of making the the the, the paint just sparkle, and then to realize that he did that in one night. That's crazy. <laughs> it is crazy. Yeah. But. That also makes me think of, and you mentioned it earlier, is your um, Cats in Quarantine series, where mm -hmm. I I don't know if it was every day since kind of quarantine has started, but there is a vast quantity of little illustrations you've made of cats doing various interesting things, I guess, that just kind of you get inspired as you go, but there is a lot, like you are pumping out a lot of drawings. Well, actually, I, I, I did the last one last week because um yeah I was, I was thinking what happened with the cartoons is i was reading an article in the wall street journal about how people were dealing with the lockdown the pandemic and stuff and then people were turning to artistic venues mm. to sort of capture their spirit of what they're going through and i and then i read somewhere else that people probably the, the most um popular videos on the internet are cats and I have cats. So I thought, okay, I'll just kind of, you know, what are cats doing in quarantine? So I did a cartoon a day for, I think I did like 400 of them. When I first started it was in April of 2020 and I thought by June I'd be done. Right? You'd hope to. And then what happened, uh, and what happened June 1st is the whole BLM stuff happened. So I, I have some cartoons about the cats in quarantine and riots and, dealing with that and then i hit the one year mark uh in april and, and then after that i thought okay and then can memorial day anyway here in denver it's pretty much i mean you have the holdouts people wearing masks because they're driving their car and stuff but pretty much everywhere else uh people just don't have masks sometimes in a restaurant or things like that or in in, in a bookstore you know <laughs> they all have masks uh, so, but other than that, it, you know, parties, barbecues, and all that. And I'm like, well, it, the quarantine's pretty much over. Yeah. So, what I, so the next thing is, I'm going to put a book together called the, the the Best of Cats of Quarantine. And hopefully, uh, I'm meeting with a guy next week. I'm going to be talking about the production and everything. So, probably maybe by August, it'll be available, and I'll I'll be happy to send you a copy. I'd love to see it when it's ready. I I mean, I looked through a bunch of them. Um, but you know what? Some of them, I couldn't understand what was going on. And that occurred to me that this is probably one of the most interesting ways I've ever seen of somebody journaling, like a daily journal. Because you're going to be able to look back at each one of these and you're instantly going to know what you were doing, what you were thinking, how you were feeling when you're doing that. But you're doing it through illustrations. I it just, for some reason, that's never occurred to me. And I was just thinking how, also and how special because... You know, if you have a journal, somebody's going to be able to read it and understand what you were thinking. But these, it's almost like a secret code, right? A secret language. And they can kind of interpret it to mean what they want, you know? And I thought that was, that was a really unique way of, of going about it. I'm, I'm sure that's probably not what you had in mind when you first started, but looking at it 
you know, in hindsight, I think that's fascinating. Well, actually, the book is going to be called Cats in Quarantine, a memoir. So that's, that's, awesome. that's going to be my memoir. And I thought some of the most some of the more esoteric of the cartoons people wouldn't get and people would get them. They were like, oh, yeah, I know exactly what that, that one is. And, and some of them were just really silly and people loved them. There's one where the cat is facing down a mouse. And the mouse is dressed in a karate gi, and he's doing the crane stance from uh, <laughs> from Karate Kid. Uh, from the Karate Kid, and the cat's looking at him, and you know what's going to yeah. happen. I mean, this, <laughs> this mouse can—he can pretend he can do all he wants, but that cat is just going to squash him and, and eat him. And 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 sometimes, you know, the, the cartoons went all over. Sometimes they were kind of cute, and sometimes it got dark. There was one where the guy's gonna—I don't know if you saw that one—where he's gonna—he has the guillotine. And he's gonna, he's playing, he's and he has bowl, he has bowling pins set down, <laughs> set down, and he's got another cat, and he's going to uh, uh, use his head to play bowling with him. And so that was a dark. I had some other darker ones, and I had a lot of fun with the, the stuff with the riots. Uh, one of my favorite ones is there's a chaos, there's riots, there's cops beating people, there's tear gas, there's guys lobbing mock Molotov cocktails. And there's this cat with the little pizza hat, and he's running through this chaos with the pizza, trying to do, you know, he's, you know, he's trying. All he wants to do is deliver this pizza because right. he's got to pay the bills, right. right? So I thought that was kind of a juxtaposition within the chaos. There's still people trying to make money, yeah, or you know, do it. Or just trying to survive, yeah. Just trying to survive, right? Yeah, yeah. So that's interesting. I love it. I think it was such a that's such a cool outlet, but just the idea that. It's the same kind of thought. I guess it's the same thing you admire in those um, airbrush artists is that it's you set a goal for yourself and you're attaining it and you just you put your head down and you crank it out one after another after another. It also makes me wonder once you when you first start something like that, it probably I don't know, you probably had a few ideas that would pop in your head. But I bet at some point you kind of started looking at the world differently in kind of sort of expectantly in all the experiences around you waiting for the next cats in quarantine idea to, to sort of spark. Did you, did you, I mean, did your kind of way of looking at the world sort of shift a little bit when you were always looking for new sources of inspiration? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. When I first started, I had probably maybe uh, two weeks worth of 14 cartoons readily that came to yeah, mind. Yeah. And there were and, and there were times where I would sit down at at my my little dry, drafting table and I had no idea what I was going to draw. So I would start. Um, sometimes an idea would I would have an idea like I'd walk my dog before I I would uh, go and I I try to be very open and some of the most random stuff would just come come to mind. Uh, like like probably one of the really ones that people liked which which was uh, the cats. Facing off raccoons, like from the the, the movie um, uh, West Side Story. So, so it's just crazy. They're doing that whole thing with their snap of their <laughs> fingers, and and then they're weird dancing on top of the trash cans and the dumpsters. And, and I thought this is so darn silly, and people loved it. They jumped on it right away. And this thing just came to mind. I was walking my dog, and I looked in the alley. And I thought, hey, why do we have rats and I mean cartoons and cats doing a, uh, an homage to uh, West Side Story? And people, that, that one just came to mind. Um, 
I have, I don't know if you know, there was an artist by the name of Clyburn who does the cat. He, the man passed away a long time ago. But he really, if you go and, and do, just look up cat cartoon, you'll inevitably see his. And his estate still around. Um, and I have, I have some of his books, and sometimes I flip through them to get inspiration. I definitely would not want to copy mm -hmm. him. You know, that's, but uh, um, that's like a comedian copying somebody else's bit, right? That's, that's like, that is definitely low. So I would never do that. And in fact, sometimes I would I would draw and, and I would stop myself. I'm like, oh, I think this is too much like a cartoon I saw of, of Clyburn's. So so I wouldn't I wouldn't do that one. But I, I just kind of, you know, kind of mm -hmm. prime the pump as it were. Uh, sometimes just oddball places on YouTube. You just um, spur something to mind. So I have no idea where some of the ideas came from, but they would just. But. Sometimes I'd sit down and I could crank out a cartoon in about 15 minutes, and sometimes I'd be down there for two hours, just sort of killing trees, going through different drafts. <laughs> That's cool. Yeah, it's. I'm always curious about somebody's creative process and where they where they find inspiration on something they're doing, especially something that they've, you know, every day for a year straight they've been doing it, and yet they're still able to find new sources of inspiration that, that always that always intrigues me because it seems like there always comes a point where I sort of run out of gas on projects I get I get really interested in stuff and I'll figure it out to a certain level of competency and then once I reach that level of mastery I don't know my enthusiasm for it sort of wanes and I just drift away from it and I, I move on to so maybe I just need a new challenge and once I've surmounted it you know I feel like I've bested it I'm ready to move on to something else I'm not sure well, in, in writing novels, that phenomenon you're talking about is called the swamp or the soggy middle. The soggy middle. Because you reach, yeah, you reach that middle point of, of the novel and you can, it's just so overwhelming. And it can be very intimidating and a lot of people lose uh, interest or they lose enthusiasm and motivation. They have to really get, get going with that. Mm. So there was something else that you've mentioned a couple of times that sort of have weaved through the things you've told me and that is your like your mexican heritage and culture and you mentioned that you worked um as an artist in residence at uh, arte, arte americas and i looked that up a little bit and it's really about kind of what like, like latino heritage and things like that and and you know presenting in those Fresno. artists and art right is, am i wrong or yeah yeah very much so uh I, I, you know, I have not, I've been away from there for a long time, so I don't know what the direction it, it was going. At, at that time, it was it was mainly, you know, when you say Latino, that's a huge. Yeah, it's a huge, huge chunk. Yeah, a huge thing. It, at that time, because of uh, Fresno, it, it, the uh, the agriculture and the the heritage of California, um, the Mexican heritage, then it was mainly. Uh, uh, Mexican um, Latino was the, you know the Mexican influence uh, from that it, it, and it was more and I think today today was more uh, theatrical um, they kind of do um, that the kind of presentation um, and some visual artists but I, it was it was primarily um, like theater uh, plays um, I think they may have gone to spoken word, that, hmm. you know, since then. Um, 
sometimes it gets broadened out. I locally, I, I, I'm not. I don't volunteer like I used to. There's uh, su teatro, which is different because they are definitely su teatro means says your, your theater. So they are definitely almost exclusively um, in theatrical presentations, either plays or music. They have music festivals and that. And the artistic or the the painting side of it is very small uh, part to that. And what I was involved with them was was just as a volunteer, you know, showing up and working the concession stands and taking tickets <laughs> and, and working on fundraisers uh, for them. So it definitely seems like you're, and this is, this is, this is more something in me that makes me curious about you is that you are very proud of your Mexican culture. Uh, you've talked about it multiple times and, you know, you've worked for organizations and with organizations that are, you know, strong in those roots. Me, I just, you know, I'm just, I uh, just, you know, a cisgender white kid from Texas. So I don't feel like I really have any culture other than American. And what is American culture? Uh, but hamburgers, hot dogs, and apple pie, I guess. I don't know. And that seems so boring. So when I see somebody who's like so connected to their cultural roots, it's always curious. It's like, what is it about that that, that draws you in as opposed to just saying, yeah, I'm just, you know, a milk toast American like me over here. Like, what's what's different about you that makes you, like, so strong in that? Well, what's made me stronger lately is how people tend to define it in their own way. And I don't want them to define it in a way that clashes with the way I see it uh, in, the, in the way I, I, I grew up and experienced in that part. Um I'm mystified by, for example, you, you know, you know, you, you have a great culture, your family. I mean, you know about your family coming here or where they're at in the United States. Um, I don't think anybody gave them anything. Uh, you know, they had to struggle for themselves. Um, you know, when I say the, the Mexican heritage, I, I, mean, I have to kind of qualify that because I, I grew up in the United States. I didn't grow up in Mexico. I have relatives in Mexico. Mm -hmm. I, I, I try to learn as much as I can. But if I go, when I go to Mexico, I, I go there as an American. I mean, I can't, I, uh, I, I, I can't, uh, I can't get away from that perspective that I have of it. And also many of my relatives have come to the United States um, to, uh, you know, find success, to earn money. Uh, if you, if you don't, if you want to be creative about your life, you come to the United States. Everybody does, uh, despite all these faults that we might have had or might have. You know, there's people from Africa coming to the United States. People, I mean, this is the destination. Elon Musk came to the United States to to become the person that he is today. Mm. I mean, he's from South Africa originally, but he knew as a young man that if he wanted to get the kind of success he wanted, he had to come to the United States. You know, as far as culture in the United States, you know, our movie culture, our mass culture, American music. <laughs> Jazz, right? That's all American. Uh, barbecue, right? I mean, it has its roots somewhere else, like all, everything. But uh, you know, there's just so much. This, 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 this thing about being an American and allowing yourself to be very creative and to invent yourself. Um, I have, I've had people who go, for example, to Europe. And they talk, you know, talk about, you know, you, you do not go to Europe to find a career. 
right? You already made your career in the United States and you have some money. Then you can go to Europe <laughs> and you don't have to worry about it. And then you can talk about how great it is over there because you, you, you didn't have to really, you know, uh, a struggle through the system um, that, you know, like, like you would have, you would have here in the United States. Um, the, the other part that, that in other countries is that things are very stratified. Well, in the United States, there's a tremendous amount of mobility. I mean, a lot of it is tied to money, but uh, your ability to make money, your ability to 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 pursue your own career aspirations, we kind of take it for granted here in the United States. But in other places, you don't, you know, you just don't have that 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 ability. Um, I, you know, when I was in Desert Storm and I went to Saudi Arabia, there's a caste system. They don't call it that, but there's definitely a caste system over there. Um, the, the the way they they see people and and the way they treat people and and the the kind of access they have to resources and the law for example, uh, I I had some other people that went to Spain and Spain is a really nice country and you go there though but you can kind of see that there are some differences between the the way they look at look down at other people. Um, there's a there's there's a really fascinating book. I haven't read it yet, but I read a review of this book. I think it's called African Europeans, and the reality is is that, you know, despite our our the American past, not my past, but the American past with slavery, right, and and on the terrible thing, more slaves were imported into Europe than the Americas. Hmm. So what happened to them? <laughs> what happened to them? Right. Well, as in the United States and in Brazil, for example, which are the two countries where the black population has been a significant contributor to the culture. Well, what what happened to all the slaves that went to Portugal? You know, I mean, there are, I mean, there's, there's, I mean, there, Alexander Dumont, the guy who wrote the, the Three Musketeers, was uh, was mixed race, but he can, you know, he considered himself black. His father was black. He was a pretty badass general in the French army. But those are very few and far between of the experiences that that we that we see every once in a while in Shakespeare. And then you have Othello, and you read Othello. Shakespeare, despite being this white guy, was very well attuned to the idea of race and cultural identity. So where did he pick that up? Well, obviously there had to be black people around that he that they made him very aware of mm. that. So what happened to them? Right? What happened to them? Um, this is just something I'm thinking about in in my head. Um, you know, trying to figure to sort that all out now as for our, for me the mexican heritage um there's a lot of mexicans here who like in texas and in california or new mexico and arizona who were there where the united states when when it the border shifted on them right after the mexican-american war and they were no longer part of mexico and now they were part of the united states and a lot of them lost property and and, and status but for me, my family, we came from from Mexico, so we, like I said, we are the the proud wetbacks. Uh, you know, we we that's we crossed as undocumented into this country, and and they they came to uh, to get a better life. And I remember as a young as a boy growing up, our relatives coming north, and and it was all on the down low because we knew they were undocumented coming in they'd stay with us i mean there was just something that we that we did they'd come in and and for a while and find work and move on and in that regard so so that that and so the the part of it is is you know why why do i keep bringing that up is like i mentioned um is that i i i do i 
so like for somebody, and this is kind of uh, maybe a fault of mine, somebody say, oh, there's this guy doing this Latino performance about something. And they invite me. And, and I won't go because I say, what is this guy going to tell me that I have not experienced myself? Hmm. Right? You know, and who is he to 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 claim that he is the voice of Latinos because hmm. he's not speaking to me. OK, so there's a lot of that kind of fighting that goes that, that goes on is, you know, why is this person on stage? Well, he's on stage because he did all the work and, and, and all that. I'm not going to begrudge him that. But I am not going to let him claim that he's speaking for Latinos when he could say something that I disagree with. And I'm going to say, look, I mean, I'm a Latino. I'm not a Mexican-American. I know what it's like to be hassled by the cops. You know, I, that's happened quite a bit as a young man growing up. So so I, I that's just the way I, I see that. Um, the, you know, and, and that other part is that something about my life that I, I can't. I can't ignore because I'm not allowed to ignore it. I can't forget it, right? You see me, you know, if I say I'm a Mexican, you're like, yeah, yeah, you're a Mexican, you know. I'm not fooling anybody. Um, I, I, uh, I've i had people say things, you know, to me, and sometimes just innocently, like, hey, Quentin, can you come to my house and do some gardening or something like that? I mean, actually, that's never actually happened. But <laughs> sometimes where, where, where I show up in an in a area and people will be kind of surprised. Like, for example, in the creative writing uh, world, um, people will not expect the person who's working on this particular piece of work to be a Mexican, right? They're expecting someone else. And then they're expecting me as a Mexican to have a certain kind of viewpoint on it. Well, I, I won't. I'll have, I'll have a, different, a different perspective and, of course, a different attitude about the way things, I think, the way I, I, see, I see the world. Um, so that there's that part, um, and you know, and if I go to when I go to uh, Mexico, for example, or if I go to any other, the only other Latin country I've been to is Panama, which I loved. There's no hiding the fact. As soon as I open my mouth and start to speak, no matter how fluent and conversant I try to be in in Spanish, they can immediately know that I am not from there. Um, sometimes they won't know I'm from the United States, but a lot of times they will. Um, so that's one of the. So I can't. No, I, I can't hide that. That I, I. If I was to, it's an older term now, but one that is, is Chicano, which means you know a Mexican American from this from the northern side of the border. I mean, you know, so we we kind of straddle both sides of the, of the border. Hmm. I liked I like what I, you I, said I, early in on that. Something about something very akin to. Uh, it's my truth. Like, um, you know, and, and I want to say it so that you know it, you know, from, from, from you. Right. So don't just assume this or assume that listen to what I say and understand it to be my truth. What I tell you as much. I think that's, that's awesome. That's something I, I learned a long time ago. Somebody was saying that, um, somebody had called him out on something. They're like, I'm just going to ignore it. Um, and I thought, you know, that's, if you, if it's out there and you don't acknowledge it and tell your truth, they're going to make up what your truth is for you. So you're the only one that can do that for yourself. So you kind of have to just own it, find your voice and put it out there. I think that's all. And then the idea of somebody else doesn't necessarily represent me, right? You might be from the same place as me. Um, you might sound like me or look like me, but you have no understanding of what my experiences are. I love that. I love the idea of that is that just stay open 
to this is a human, right? That has all these experiences and this uh, stuff inside their life that you know nothing about. I love that. So one one of the things that I do in my writing, that my my personal writing, is that my protagonist is always uh, Latino or Latina, usually Mexican American. It doesn't matter what what they're what. Like I had one story, a science fiction horror story, where the protagonist was she was a a colonel astronaut surgeon, and uh, and it's but she definitely her her last name was Nunez, you know, so it's very definitely a, a Latina, and, and so I, I'm very deliberate about that because that's not really what you expect, and, and and but I said why not, right? Um, you know why not? I was a pilot in, in, in the army, and I knew a lot of guys. Uh, Latin Puerto Ricans, even that were fellow attack helicopter pilots, so you know, so why why not have that? Uh, so it's, for me, it's not diversity for for like example diversity's sake. It's just to say, well, I want somebody like from from my heritage to be included. And that doesn't necessarily mean they're the good ones. So one one you know, I will have them as the bad guys all the time, right? Uh, as as bank robbers, as uh, uh, as uh, kind of just low life kind of guys, I won't hesitate to to make sure that they're that the protagonist is 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 a Chicano. Uh, but as long as the individual comes across as as authentic, uh, and um, so in that in that other story that that horror story about the uh, uh, the the uh, astronaut surgeon, she makes it a point that she is this colonel in the Air Force as an astronaut surgeon. I mean, she, she delineates that. She puts her boundaries all around her and not realizing she's walking into a trap. <laughs> <laughs> that, doesn't, that, doesn't, that doesn't work well. It seems like uh, a lot of women, you know, though, like to that point, a lot of women in uh, powerful positions that are predominantly male-held positions, they have to, you know, they have to be very, uh, very upfront about that stuff. They have to be very, you know, strong and uh, strict with their emotions and stuff. They're not allowed... Um, the grace that you know some of us guys are in those scenarios so i think that's very true to life you know a woman in, in that position that would have to like you know be that person you know be that strong right. individual right well and the irony is the fact that she is in that position is what is getting her into you know the mess that she finds herself <laughs> uh, you know and then in that same anthology i had a couple of vatos from the north side here in denver who um uh, the, it, it's a horror story, but it's it's very different in tone. Where they um, they find a magic lantern and they turn it into a bong, <laughs> and and the genie in the lantern does not like it, so he gets back at these guys. Right, so it's it is definitely a horror story, but it's a, it's a funny horror story. If, if you can well, that. while we're while we're talking about your writing, let's get a little bit more into that. So, not only are you a very accomplished artist, I think. I think Eric said that some of your artwork is actually hanging in the Smithsonian, right? So it, it can be. It's my work that I did for the army. Yeah, that's. Um, so I don't know where I don't know where it hangs. It, it, it's probably not in a permanent collection in the Smithsonian, but um, it, it, the art belongs to the Center of Military History, the U.S. Army Center of Military History, what they call the Army Art Collection, which is older than the United States of America. You had guys back then, cartographers were also like artists on the side. So a lot of their artwork is, is you know, they were with George Washington. And then over the years, I don't know if you know who Thomas Eakins was, big watercolor painter, uh, Winsor Homer, um, Thomas Hopper, 
Um, he's from the 30s and the 40s. Uh, did a lot of landscape paintings, urban landscape paintings, one of my, my inspirations. But he, he also did work. There was a man by the name of Tom Leah who was a muralist before. He was one of those, what is it, WPA artists who during the Depression would paint murals. So like you, in the old uh, post offices, you might see murals from that period. Um, he didn't paint them all, but he, when I grew up in southern New Mexico, you'd see a lot of his work. And it turns out that he was a, an artist for the Army in World War II. And he did paintings that were so graphic that the army would not show them. Wow. Uh, yeah, because he started very patriotic. And at first, his depictions of soldiers and airmen and the sailors were, you know, guys doing their duty and that. And then he actually went on some beach assaults. And it just, it, it just you know, what, what these men went through just horrified him. And he felt that that had to be depicted on the, on the canvas. Mm. And the army would not show those. The government would not show those in public. Uh, so, so, so the army art activity. Um, uh, you know, I got. So I was good. I mean, it was great. But, but I don't know where that work goes. Mm. Somebody will. I'll get a random email from somebody says, "Hey, I saw your work. For example, there was a, a veteran show in in uh, Philadelphia. I think Liberty Hall in Philadelphia, and there was my work. I had no idea. Where That's that. so cool." That's so yeah, cool, man. So you're just, you're all over the place. Well, so Eric sold me, he told me about that. And he said he also had a vampire detective novel that was declassified by the U.S. government. And I was like, what does that even mean? I was like, there are so many ways I could interpret that. But I didn't want to dig into it because I wanted, I wanted to hear you sort of explain some of that stuff. Well, when, when I got... In, first interested in starting to write uh, serious, I, I was probably 1986 or something like that, and uh, uh, I didn't know what I was doing, but I was still writing, and, and I'd get through a novel, and it took me about two years, and I'd send it out and get rejected, and I just was kept going at it, uh, and what happened was is that my what I thought I wanted to write changed because at first I wanted to write very literary novels that you know very that explain the world right? that kind of a thing, and those <laughs> they were so boring that I'd fall asleep writing reading the draft. <laughs> I I go back to read it and I'd fall asleep my own work. So I like what? so I, I finally figured out that I thought why don't I write what I like to read, which makes it pretty obvious, but. Um, so I started gravitating more to writing like men's action thrillers. And I finally wrote one, which was my sixth manuscript that I thought for sure was going to get me published. And nothing happened with it. And I got so dejected by it. I said, the hell with it. I'm going to write the most ridiculous story I can think of, which is a vampire detective investigates an outbreak of nymphomania at a nuclear weapons plant. <laughs> And sure enough, I wrote it and I pitched it that way and, and an agent said, oh, that sounds different. And he gave me his card and, and then he decided to represent me. But what happened is, is that I actually, at the time, which is what brought me to Colorado, is I was working at Rocky Flats, which is, was a nuclear weapon. It's since been closed. But they were in the process of decommissioning it when I got here. But I still had to get a clearance and, and all that. So they, I remember went to a briefing and they told us, if you ever write anything about Rocky Flats, because you've worked here, if you write anything about Rocky Flats, you have to submit it for a, a, a what they call a classification, a declassification hmm. review. And I'm like, okay, I put that in my head. 
So after I went and I, this agent decided to to uh, to represent that work called The Nymphos of Rocky Flats. <laughs> I thought of this and I told him, I said, you know, I all of a sudden think about this briefing that I went to and I think I have to resubmit this for review. So I contacted uh, the Department of Energy. It's called Document Control in Germantown, Pennsylvania. I think. And I called him up and I said, look, I have this manuscript and I remember this briefing and I kind of gave him a broad outline of the book that involves nymphomaniacs <laughs> and, and a vampire detective and even some aliens. And I was throwing. And, and, and I said, do I really have to turn this in? And I go, yes. Because you might have inadvertently done said something. Right. And the, the, so I'm like, okay. So I sent him the manuscript. And then I called my agent at the time. And I said, look. And they told me two weeks. And he goes, it's not going to take two weeks. It's going to take them three months. So he had to delay everything. So he was in the process of circulating the manuscript around publishers to get it published. And now he has to pull it out because if somebody bites on it, he doesn't want to turn oh, around and yeah. tell them, well, you got to wait. Right? So sure enough, three months passes and I hadn't heard from Document Control. And I called them and I said, what's up with my manuscript? And they go, what manuscript? Ugh. So I said, aha, I have a receipt here that it was delivered on such and such a date and it was signed by this and such person, this is your job, document control. Right? <laughs> so the guy goes, well, hold on a minute. And he puts it down and he goes, oh, we'll send it to you right away. I'm like, you, you just told me you didn't have it. So they send it to me and sure enough, it's stamped and they it, there was nothing. So they it was declassified, there was nothing. So it was, it was classified, declassified or unclassified. You know, it's the government for you, right? So I was talking about it with my with the agent. I said, well, let's, you know, the old, the old cliche, let's turn lemons into lemonade mm -hmm. or into lemon drop martinis. So <laughs> I said, um, so I said, let's let's put that out there and say this is the first. And so as far as we know, only vampire novel that has had to be reviewed and declassified by the federal government. <laughs> so go we ran with that. And that's true. That's true. And in the. Um, the frontispiece, which is the first pages of the manuscript, is 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 the letter from the Department of Energy that you know gives them their blessing that I can declassify it. And then there's the declassification stamp that we pull out of the manuscript that's on the on the first page of the manuscript. So I can say that I have props in in that regard. Um, and I haven't thought that, and, and I didn't. And I actually, when I worked at Rocky Flats, I actually went out of my way, not even though I had a what they call a Q clearance to not know anything okay i i, I you know i i was i said i don't want to know <laughs> what i don't need to know so i deliberately just averted my eyes and just you know made sure i wasn't curious about anything so i actually had no exposure to classified information when i was there so but it would have been very interesting if i were to put something in the in the book and they would have redacted it with these big black lines <laughs> And I would have, and people would have said, well, "What is it that the government doesn't want us to know about <laughs> vampires?" But, you know, I, I was, I was not that forward-thinking uh, on it. That's awesome. So, That's a hell of a story. So you said that was your seventh manuscript. That was my seventh so, manuscript. Yes. How? So you said you started in 1986 with the first one. How long was it that you like before you got to the seventh one where you actually got some traction and got moving? 17 years 17 years and you didn't give up 
Yeah, like I said, I was just too stubborn. <laughs> like people talk about their spirit animals. Some people say they're eagles, and some people say they're dolphins. My spirit animal is a dolphin. <laughs> a, a burrow. I just too stubborn to quit. I just keep walking that trail and putting one hoof in front of the other and keep going. 17 years. Um, so, and now this is, I mean, 17 years, seven attempts, and now this is what you do to put food on the table. This is what feeds you. Well, it, even after that, it, it, it took it took uh, a while. I mean, so I got published in, um, well, I, I signed that contract in 2004. That novel got published in 2006. And uh, at that time, uh, well, prior to that, I had actually been laid off. And it, was, it put me in a bad financial spot. And then, uh, and then I went and got my master's in computers thinking, well, this is a job that's recession proof and then i got caught in the other recession and i got laid off again uh now with a student loan so um you know so that was working different jobs i mean you know here here i was mechanical engineer army veteran officer uh uh computer science guy delivering pizzas fixing forklifts uh, landscaping. Um, I did a stint at CDOT, uh, Colorado Department of Transportation. Mm. Uh, a lot of paperwork stuff. Um, again, the job I hated, and they hated me. <laughs> so, we were, so we were fair. It was even. It was a draw. And it just took a while before the writing thing actually it, it actually uh, uh, picked up. Um, so I've been doing this since uh, 20, about a little over 10 years. 10 years. Ten years so, I mean, it's a vampire detective, uh, and all of I, I noticed all of your titles are sort of clickbaity. You know, the the nymphos, and yeah. then, uh, you know, so it's, there's always something very sexy in the title. Uh, I I actually I ordered one of your books for whatever reason. It was on Prime, but it's not. It didn't get here in two days, um, so it's coming tomorrow. So I'm going to start on it tomorrow. Uh, Which one? Uh, the first one. I just I just figured I'd start oh, with uh, Rocky oh, Flats. Yeah, okay. I mean, Nymphos of Rocky. Yeah, yeah. Start at the start. Um, but sure. I read a review and somebody said that the title's a little misleading. It's not. Uh, it's it's not over sexualized the way you might think it would be from the title. They said it's actually really uh, really engaging, really fun. Uh, so I'm I'm into that. So I was just I was curious. <laughs> how did you come up with that interesting combination of things? What. Uh, all of the things the uh the vampires mixed with uh nymphomania outbreak in uh oh, rocky place well okay well that one <laughs> that one when i was i was frustrated i was talking to this this, this woman by the name of Cin uh, cynthia myers she was my we shared a cubicle there at rocky flats and and you know she knew i was a, a writer kind of a wannabe writer uh, and i was kind of frustrated and i and i i was just sort of telling her i said maybe and she said to me you should maybe you should write a, a novel about rocky flats and i thought uh well how about i, I said okay how about i write a, a novel about an outbreak of nymphomania at rocky flats <laughs> and then she told me that's already happened <laughs> well, so she, she was giving me all these stories of people who've been caught you know, doing things in at Rocky Flats, right in the conference room, uh, in the uh, in in the, uh, the in the secure area where they have 
these buildings with the glove boxes like you've seen in the movies, right, where the guys are reaching in, you know, working the material. Well, those, those buildings are, um, are pressurized, um, and they're connected with airlocks, which they call plenums. And the, the buildings are very well monitored with video cameras and stuff, but the plenums are not. So people on the graveyard shift would hook up in the plenums. <laughs> Later, the, when the co-ed, uh, when the guard force went co-ed, it would take you about 45 minutes to do a perimeter, a drive in the uh, in the perimeter in the vehicle. And then when they went co-ed, all of a sudden it started taking like two and a half hours. When <laughs> <laughs> they had mixed mixed couples in in the in in the patrol car, so, you know, so there was that kind. Of, and then years later, when the novel first got published and uh, when they were closing down Rocky Flats, they had a big, uh, uh, like a meet and greet at one of the local bars. And there was a lot of people that showed up there. And I go there and my book was just going to come out and I was handing out uh, uh, postcards with the book cover. And I was handing them out. And invariably, I give it to a woman and the woman goes, the nymphos of Rocky Flats, is this about me? <laughs> Oh my gosh! So, so that, uh, so then the titles when when I uh, signed the contract, my my uh, my agent said, um, "Well, the book like this sells as a series, so I got you a contract for three books." I'm like, okay. So I talked to the editor, and the editor goes, oh, "Well, we're putting the contract together, and we need the t titles for the other books." So of course I had the nymphos of Rocky Flats, and then the second title just came to the top of my head, uh, X-rated. <laughs> X-rated Bloodsucker, and she goes, "Okay, I like that one." And then the title for the third book was "The Undead Kama Sutra." <laughs> so, and those titles just sort of just sort of came popped into my head. Um, and then we have Jailbait Zombie, and then the fifth one is sort of the only G-rated title, which is uh, Werewolf Smackdown. Um, and I was actually going to call it the Werewolf Super Sex Club. <laughs> But my editor would not. She did not like that title for some reason, you know. And 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 she, I don't know why. So we went round and round and round, and she dug in her heels. She goes, no, no. So became Werewolf Smackdown, uh, which is which is great. That's what it, what it is. And it's like I said, it's my only high school G-rated title. Uh, and then um, uh, and then I lost my contract uh, with uh, Harper Collins. Those those my 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 contract for the first five books was. With Harper Collins, which is a big deal, right? I mean, it was it's it's a big deal. Harper Collins is probably, I think, it's the second largest book publisher in, in the United States. Um, I think Grant, what used to be called Grand Central, I don't know if they still are. It used to be Time Warner and then Grand Central, and then you have Harper Collins, which is part of News Corp. It's big. So you know, getting picked up by them is, is is quite a coup and all that. But in in writing novels, creative writing. Uh, writing fiction it's you know throw it against the wall and see what sticks and i didn't stick uh so um so i i got dropped and you know it's a business decision i understand mm -hmm. that uh, but i actually i actually was was a little bitter by this and i and this is when i talked to other writers about and that i got i got really bitter about it because i thought i had tried my absolute best to do what i could to get more success and and it just didn't work out and I, I kind of externalized a lot of that frustration that I had, and I actually quit writing hmm. um, to the point that I was just so frustrated and 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 um, 
anger and, and having so much anger for it that I, I quit writing and I said, this is, you know, I just felt cheated. So I started getting emails from, from uh, uh, fans and they're asking me, what's going on with Felix? What's going on with Felix? What's going on with Felix? And uh, uh, th that, that, that caused me to go back to it because the, the people were asking wow. uh, for it. And, and when I did get back to it, I thought, you know, really what a fool I'd been because who did I hurt by not writing? I only hurt only myself. Yourself. I only hurt myself. And I should have stuck with it during those years. And then when I picked up by it, and then my uh, sixth and seventh book uh, were published by, uh, were, are published by Wordfire Press which is a smaller uh, regional press here, but they've done a really great job with editing and, and all that and, and supporting me. So that, so in my sixth book, in my series, I had, I left a lot of things kind of hanging out there and I thought I needed to pull them all together and I didn't know how to do it. And I was talking to this one fan of mine and he looks at me and he tells me, man, that's brilliant the way you've done this. And I'm like, what? The way you set this up. You you know you've had all these threads going on, and I'm I'm like I didn't understand what he's getting at, and he's telling me and he's explaining this to me, and it made total sense. I just <laughs> I didn't see it. I had all these plot lines that were converging, and I didn't I didn't realize this. For example, in every book I talk a little bit more about. I don't know if you ever talk ever had anybody talk to you about like the astral plane and astral projection right. and and that. So in every book, I actually talked a little bit more about it, a little bit more, a little bit more. And I was just sort of developing that just sort of as a trope of the story. But this guy interpreted that as me actually using it as a um, uh, uh, as foretelling what's going to happen. Right. Hmm. And, and, and instead of just springing it on, on, on the reader in the first book, I'm kind of like teasing them along because as my character is learning about this, then it's, he's showing it to the world. When actually it was me learning about that. So finally it's not until the, the sixth book that I was able to use all these different plot lines to to kind of step out or work with what that fan had told me that I had done. <laughs> so so it may be my subconscious, I was doing all that, I just didn't realize. And then finally I was able to use all those different tropes to to fix uh, the, the, or to address the big plot plot story, mm. and then the, the the seventh book is uh, uh, is it was I needed to write a steampunk book, so steampunk banditos, but I needed to have that little twist, that little spice on the title, and uh, I was looking, and in the Gulf of California, other people might know as the Sea of Cortez, you have uh, Isla Tiburon, which means Shark Island. How can you not have a book about vampires and not include Shark Island? <laughs> so what? So I thought, what about Shark Island is attractive to my, my you know, to my uh, protagonist? Well, sex slaves. So the book is called The Sex Slaves of Shark Island. So, you know, so it's very pulpy. I know that. And, uh, so, so, and, and I have to say that my books get a little bit more sexual as, as they go along. And not, not too much, but I, I do. Talk a little bit more as they go. They're not. They're definitely not. Even though my X-rated vampires, I had that somebody tell me it's not X-rated. It's R-rated, but it's not X-rated. <laughs> it's, it's just the title. That's interesting. So, what's it? What's it like when you first start writing a book? Like just before you start, is it a little bit difficult to get yourself 
motivated to, you know, get in front of the keyboard and start typing? Or is it, I mean, is it at this point, is it so like old hat that you just pick up and start going? You still have to motivate yourself to do that stuff. Uh, that is one of the tricky questions. And in fact, one of my favorite um, quotes is from um, Leonardo da Vinci. He said, it's always hardest at the beginning. So here's this guy that we acknowledge is one of the great and most prolific geniuses of all time. Mm. And even he had to motivate himself at the beginning of the day, right? So, so that is something that, and why, why, why is this? Um, you know, why does it, and I can tell you exactly, exactly what it is, but it is something that, that happens to us. And I think it's part of this creative avenue that we get into where it is a little bit intimidating to get there. And we start getting into something that's intimidating. Our lizard brain counteracts, reacts to it. And it starts looking for excuses not, 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 not to do that. But once we do get into that process and we kind of unlock that and we start doing, um, doing, doing the work, um, you know, just take that first step. And, um, you know, it's kind of cheesy to say it, the, the Nike thing, just do it. Mm -hmm. uh, the other way is uh, uh, thought follows action. Which is the other, which is completely counterintuitive, right? We think we have to have everything all planned out, and then once we have it all planned out, then we can move forward. When it's actually the opposite way around, you move forward first, and then you start. Other thoughts start congealing because now you have a direction, now you have momentum, now you have a thrust going going forward that way. Um, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm sure with you. Sometimes you're doing your creative thing, and and you and, and you have to do something. You might you might have promised something to somebody. And you said, I, I have no idea. And then you sit down and then all of a sudden things start to happen and you start these things you didn't think about, these creative links start to happen and, and you and you surprise yourself with what you yeah. do. I mean, like my cats in quarantine, I would tell myself, I would sit down, I had no idea what I was going to do, but I say, I'm just going to open myself and nothing happens. <laughs> I, I, was, I was at another uh, writing panel and the question was, what is the center of your creativity? What is the center of your creativity? And I told them, my ass. <laughs> and the reason my ass is the center of creativity <laughs> is because nothing, ha because nothing happens until I plant my ass in the chair. Mm. Okay, And that's what I meant. My, plant my ass in the chair and get to work. Because other than that, it's just ideas. Right? And put ideas into form uh, and give that form some function. It, it's not going to happen unless you do work. So that's what I tell them. Yeah. I mean, for me, it's remove distractions and start. Just start. That's right. That's start. doesn't matter exactly. if it's, I mean, it's not going to be amazing the very first second you start going it. I never understand any of it. And honestly, that's the way how I learn is I do it all the ways I can do it wrong. And then eventually I do it some way that works. And it's like, oh, okay, now I did it. So it's just, I just need to start. Well, that's, that's in, in writing. There's this saying which goes, uh, "Give give yourself permission to write crap." Right? So that that first draft that you do is just fertilizer. Okay, just fertilizer. Just, I like that. Right, right. But somebody, some another writer told me, "You're looking at that backwards. That first draft is the universe talking to you." Okay, and it talked to you alone at that instant. All right. 
So what if it's imperfect? What is perfect on the first try? Nothing is. So that so so it just made me think fundamentally different about that first draft. It is not crap. It is this this light of creativity shining down mm-hmm. upon you. Okay. And then it is for you to, to, to tend that garden and, and to make it what, what you want to do. So so I thought that was a kind of a remarkable way of looking at that whole aspect of 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 creativity and you know, what is inspiration? Where does it come from? Um, and it, I, I mean, I, I it, it's made me think a little bit differently about religion uh, in that what is what is what is creativity come from? You know, and like I said, inspiration is the universe talking to you. Well, what part of the universe? Why is it talking to us and not to cows, <laughs> not, not, to, not to monkeys, right? You know, because we are we are part of the, the the divine. We're imperfect creatures for sure, but we are receptive to that, and that that is what. Draws it. There's this book by a man but named Steve Steve Pressfield called The War of Art. And, and I really recommend that book to you. And he talks a lot about motivation. And the first part of the book is very nuts and bolts uh, about it, sitting down, doing the work, you know, being professional about it. But then he, he, he talks about, he kind of gets into the metaphysical part about, well, what is inspiration? Right? And then he, talk, he, and, and then he talks about this idea of resistance, how, and it's our, our brain always making excuses for itself right and and a lot of these distractions that that you talked about those are your distractions and so you have the power of pushing them mm-hmm. away okay and doing your work so that is that is that resistance part but what's the other what's the flip side of the resistance well, the, well he calls them the angels right and the angels are the ones that are bringing the inspiration to you which is a more powerful force than resistance if you think about it because if it were if the angels were not more powerful than resistance nothing would get done mm. Everything that you have around you is somebody overcoming resistance. Right? So the power, the power of, you know, so you can think of the angels in in a very real sense or as an allegory or as a metaphor, but just that aspect of this this inspiration or this calling that you have, okay, to do something, uh, you know, to do something worthwhile, to be creative in your life, uh, that that you know that only comes to you alone, and that is the universe. Kind of pulling you forward, telling you, you know, you are more than what you were five minutes ago. You can do something. Mm. And there we go. So that's that, that's wise words spoken from a guy who likes to drink Manhattan. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. So let me thank you. Let me ask you something about uh, the process. So whether it's at the very beginning, somewhere in the middle, the completion. What's your favorite? What's your favorite feeling? along that entire process of writing a novel like in my head i'm thinking is it coming up with the initial idea and or you're somewhere along the way you come up with this amazing idea and just you get so excited to type that out or is it when you complete it and you know you have somebody reading like a draft and they're like this is amazing or is it the feedback from the fans or is it just the sheer relief of having it all done at the end i mean what's what's your favorite feeling you know, throughout that entire process, do you think you have one even? Well, I have I have different different feelings that 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 I draw upon and sustain myself. Um, one of them is during the process is uh, you know recognizing this work, but then finding a passage that I'm like, wow, I kind of surprised myself. <laughs> I, I, you know, I'm like, wow, this this is this is really good. Um, uh, which is not to say that I'm I'm a great writer or anything, but I, I I have to say this is this is good writing right here, 
and um, and then to hear other people reflect on that is, is good encouragement. I mean, you know, I'm I'm human. I need I need that pat on the back. So I I like that part. It makes me feel that yes, I am a professional writer. That uh, um, you know what I've done reflects years of hard work and, and study. Uh, and the other thing that I do is when I write a novel and writing on that first draft and writing the end at the at, at the at the at the end when I'm done and I write that, even though that probably will not appear in print just the fact that I wrote the end in all caps and this is the end of the first draft there's still a lot more right. work but I have achieved that part and 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 I now have forced myself to kind of revel in that moment when I write the end at, at, at the completion of the first draft it's just a little bit of a celebration that you have so many people say, hey, I, I, one day I want to write a book, right? I mean, so many people say mm. that, and and they don't. Uh, and then so many people along the way write one book, two books. I mean, nobody has to justify themselves to me, but then they just, just kind of stop. And here I am kind of still plodding along, and that writing the end is is the end, you know, is the is the final part for now of a process that took months and months to, to complete. And, and and what I've created is is mine alone, so I you know I just stop and take take pride that I you know I did this. It's kind of like climbing a mountain. I don't know if you ever climbed a mountain. <laughs> no. And you get and you and you climb a mountain and you get to the top, and and there's just this feeling of satisfaction that you climbed the mountain, even though many many other people might have climbed this mountain already. Mm. This was your effort, your effort alone, and it's all because of what you've done. And you just kind of sit on top of the mountain and look at the panorama in mm. front of you and just say, hey, I, I did it, I did it. And then now you got to get down. <laughs> now you got to find out how to get down. Yeah, but it's like, it's a it's a milestone. It's a physical representation of an accomplishment you've made. Yeah, I I can totally, uh, I can totally understand that. You know, something else. Well, well you said that you work on, ele on electronics, right? I, I do all kinds so, of so, weird stuff, so, yeah. So sometimes don't you do something for a, a client or somebody, a customer, and they wanted something and, and, and they kind of left it up to you to do it. And then you come along and you do whatever this device is and they turn on the switch and they're like, wow, this is awesome. And in your head, you're like, yeah, yeah, it is awesome. You know, I mean, you don't want to say, well, I'm like the greatest, best electronics technician in the world or engineer or whatever. But in your head, you're like, yeah, I know what I'm doing. Yeah. You know, I know what I'm well, doing. Well, all the electronic stuff I do is just for me. I would I'd never sell any of this stuff, oh. but... Um, a lot of it is kind of artistic creative. So uh, I do make um, light suits. They're like these suits that you wear. Oh, for dancers? Yeah, like that kind of thing. Yeah. yeah. Oh, wow. So wow. whenever whenever I obviously haven't done it in a long time, but I used to go to like electronic music concerts and stuff, and I'd wear these things, and just the reaction you get is pretty phenomenal. So it's, it's definitely um, – clear and immediate positive response on that stuff so yeah I, I i totally understand and you said something else that really stood out to me um you said when people say yes i liked your work you said that in your head you think yeah i, I am a writer the fact that you've been at this for you know 86 to now nearly 40 years and it's you know you stumbled so many times before you got something that picked up and then, you know, you published five books, then you stumbled again and then picked yourself back up. You still, in your head, in your heart, you still need to tell yourself, I am still a writer. The fact that, you know, 
we are these simple creatures that we do need this validation. We do need confirmation that that feeling never goes away, right? Like that you still have to validate yourself. You know, you still have to say, yes, I am doing this thing. Like, that feeling never goes away. And I think a lot of people struggle with that because, you know, they, they feel like they've never, a, a, they've never attained, you know, this, whatever it is they're trying to be when they don't realize that this whole time all along, they already have been that thing that we still require that, that somebody that's put so much effort into it and you still have the same kind of thoughts that I do. And I'm such a scrub at the creative things I do. That's, um, that gives me a, a piece, <laughs> which, uh, I didn't realize I was actually looking for. That's awesome that you well, still that, look for that. Well, what, well, thank you. But one of the things about, I, I hear, and I'm thinking is, is, uh, one of my favorite authors, Carl Hyacin, who writes these very funny novels about Florida. And he goes, uh, and he was asked this question at, at that time. He says, you know, you've written eight New York Times bestselling novels. Is it, you must feel this as you're pretty comfortable about this routine. And his answer, paraphrasing, paraphrasing him, is there's no routine. He goes, if you're a writer and at one point that you feel that it's easy, then you're writing crap. <laughs> then, then you don't know what you're doing. Okay. So you always have to feel like you're challenging yourself, okay? Because otherwise, it, it is it, it, you get stale, um, you get repetitive, you get formulaic, which is not what you. That's the opposite of being creative, mm. right? Um, so, so, so just that, and I think that's, and I go off and thought of what is it about the creative aspect that that, that triggers this resistance that we talked about, and 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 I think that what triggers that is this anxiety that we have where we have to do something new, right? You know, there, there is, I mean, we have the tropes that we're working with, okay? Um, like, and I'm just using you as an example, some of the tropes, you'd be the electronics and the lighting and those kinds of things, okay? So, so those, those are the materials that you're working with, okay? But when you're doing something, you want people to say, wow, okay, because They've always experienced someone else, but you have to take that a step further than than they are. Otherwise, you're just you're, you're not really being creative. You're being derivative, right? Um, so that's what happens. And the worst thing you can do is one of the worst things you can do as a writer is have a reader going through your book and they're like, "Well, I've read this before. Mm. Well, well, you know what? This is the same story as the other one, right?" And you and you're going to lose them. They they want. There are certain expectations that a writer, that a readers have of you, but you have to take those expectations and then build upon those expectations, extrapolate them, on them in a way that, you know, piques their interest and keeps them turning the pages and and being interested in, in, in what you're doing. And so that's the challenge, right? And I think that the resistance is that challenge is hard work and it's intimidating, and we have this inclination because it makes us uncomfortable is to pull back from there. Right? And not, and pro procrastination is the big one, right? Um, so that's uh, so. So we have to guard ourselves against that. And uh, like I was talking about, quote, uh, quote. One of the favorite quotes is, you know, the best way to summon the muse is to get to work. <laughs> you know? And the other one is make the muse pay the rent. <laughs> what do you get? You know, that's the whole thing, right? Have. If she's going to put these ideas in your head, have her stick around and see them through and, and make sure they get put into whatever, you know, product that, that it is that you that you do. I love that. I love that. Well, I tell you what, Mario, we are we are at 
pretty much time. We're actually over time, and I want to be very respectful of your time. You were so generous to give me so much of it today. Um, oh no, thank no, you. no, I really appreciate it. This was. I'm gonna. I'm gonna go back and listen to this. I mean, I I'm gonna do that anyway to edit it, but I definitely there were a lot of things. I wrote down so many quotes, and I have so many things underlined on my uh, piece of paper here. But if folks wanted to interact with you out on the internet, or if there was a certain resource you wanted to point them towards, where would you prefer them go to to find you or interact with you or whatever that looks like? The place that I'm most active is Facebook. So if you just go Facebook and type in Mario Acevedo, there's probably several of them, but you'll see me. <laughs> and and uh, uh, that's where I'm most often at i'm not very active on twitter or the only thing i did on instagram was post the cats in quarantine cartoons so i probably should go back and check to see if anybody sent messages also through my website mariosavero.com um you can there's links there if you want to find me um and if you want to send me an email probably just author at mariosavero.com or mario at mariosavero.com that'll come to me and i can respond from there and i always look forward to Emails, even emails from Nigerian princes <laughs> offering to to share my bank account so they can send me millions of dollars. That's good. They're very uh, they're very sharing people. So I'm glad you've, uh, you've met many of them. <laughs> no, that's great. No, well, um, yeah, I guess any of you listeners, if you have any questions or comments, you can fire them over to me, uh, Greg at whyamipod.com, or just go straight to Mario if you have any of those. Um, I guess. That's about it for this one, Mario. I thank you so much for joining us. It was um, I. So you were another one of those blind introductions. You have an incredible resume. You've got a Wikipedia page, which I'm super jealous about. Uh, <laughs> but um, very generous of your time. I know we didn't even get into uh, your teaching experience, so it's obvious that you you love to give back. And and you know what? It's so funny. Most of the people that spend time with me are those kind of people that like to give back and. Uh, put a little bit, uh, put a little bit of, uh, I guess, money back in the karmic machine. Uh, it's it's interesting how that stuff goes. So thank you for your time and your energy, and I uh, thank hope you. I can get through your entire series of novels really soon. I appreciate that. A final quote, because I, I have a I have a journal, a journal every day, and and every day I start with a quote, and the quote from today is from a guy by named Max Lucado, which is, happiness happens when we give it away. So, mm, true believer in that. All right, thank you, listeners. Thank you, Mario. I'm going to hit stop on all the recordings really quick. It's, okay, you take care. Stop on this thank one. you.